Focusing on the negative, I found, allowed you to kind of level up more effectively. What does your favorite author do for a living? That's a question that we get answers to in this episode, as well as many others like talent. Is that something that we're born with or is it something that it's built over time? It takes effort and energy and focus and drive and many other things that we have to actually build ourselves. Or is it a combination? We dive into those. We dive into the creative process of building a character for a book. We dive into the creative process of getting into character and acting. There's so much in this episode with Dustin. We did go over an hour. I try to keep these things under an hour, but there's just so, so many gold nuggets from Dustin in this episode. I couldn't cut it short. So we've got author, writer, Dustin Grinnell on the show for you today. And if you aren't pursuing a passion outside of your day job, whatever's paying the bills right now, if you aren't making time for your passions outside of that, I hope this one wakes you up. I hope this episode, when you get done, before it even ends, that you stop and you make a plan, you take action, you call who you need to call, you set up something, an appointment you need to set up to get started with giving time to whatever your passion is. And then we just grow. All right, let's get into it. Please welcome Dustin Grinnell. Boston-based marketing writer and writer of essays, fiction, journalism, creative writing. You've been all over the place, honestly. Your work, you've shown up quite a few places. Easily Googled. You are Googleable. Boston Globe, Washington Post. New Scientist, Salon, Vice. That's just a short list of quite a few of these things. Um, let's see here. We've got some science fiction. Is kind of This is what I'm gathering. Science fiction is just your jammy jam. That's what you literally like. I feel like you, you have your day job, but science fiction is where you're seeing the world almost like overlaying reality <laughs> in, in everyday life. So you've written you've written three novels. Uh, those include The Genius Dilemma, Without Limits, and The Empathy Academy, which was published in February of this year. Atmosphere? Atmosphere yeah. Press? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Atmosphere Press Press as a publisher. And uh, you've also won some writing awards and been featured exhibits, creative writing workshops that you've taught. I mean, you you are a writer. When I think of when I think of somebody that's like, hey, you know, what's a, what's an author like? What's a writer like? That's you. This this is the intro right here, which doesn't even have all your accolades. That's a good picture, but doesn't even have them all. Welcome to the Anthony Thomas podcast, Dustin Grinnell. Well, thank you. I'm happy to happy to be here. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm excited for this one. Partly partly because you did a lot like hosting a podcast, especially interviewing people. There's work that you should be doing kind of before the episode. You do a little research, do a little digging, kind of episode formatting, and I woke up one day to a fantastic email with an attachment that was like, hey, man, this is, you know, here's some of my thoughts. And I'm like, (laughs) I'm like, this is this is the best thing as a host. This is the best thing because I'm I'm a one man show more or less over here. Right. Like I have an editor and, you know, but overall, I'm a one man show. So when I have somebody putting an effort like this, I'm like, dude, this is 
This is fantastic. So yeah. not, not only did I love Empathy Academy, which I made a little post on Instagram recently. We'll, we'll, we'll dive into this. But not only did I love that as a reader looking at like, man, this author is solid. But you, you're just a solid dude all around with the work that you put into things that, I mean, I'm not paying you for this time here. I don't know if we... <laughs> Um, this, this is pro bono. <laughs> this is pro bono time. Yeah, yeah. No, uh, no honestly, this, is, this is fun. Yeah. 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 This is fun time for sure. So, uh, you want to, you want to give the people a little, a little background, how you and I met. Yeah. Yeah. So we met, uh, during my full-time job. Uh, I work as a copywriter for Bose corporation. And, uh, this year I was, uh, the lead writer on some, uh, earbuds that Bose, uh, just came out with this, this week, actually, uh, and, uh, you know, the whole, the whole year from January until the summer, we were coming up with ways to talk about this product and creating storyboards for videos. And we needed to create like a, like a commercial, uh, a 60 second spot. And so we went through casting and, uh, we found, uh, we found you, we found Anthony Thomas and you, uh, just jumped right off the screen, uh, for one of our, our characters. It was a business manager character who would be kind of moving and shaking out there in the world and, um, uh, scouting venues and such. And we, uh, we picked you for the, for the spot and you really shined, uh, right through in all of our materials. Um, the video, uh, that we made with you and two other characters came out this, um, this week and, uh, we're super excited. So we just ran into each other on, on set, on the shoot. Um, One, one day while we were in Seattle shooting in a yep. music venue and we just started chatting and man, we were kindred spirits. I think like really interested in personal development, philosophy, psychology, uh, literature. I think you were reading a book on set. And I was like, mm-hmm. that's the dude right there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was like, just, just, yeah. Like, um, we, we started, chatting and we ran each other a couple times on set and i was like i want to stay in touch with this guy he's 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 uh he's the real deal and uh yeah and i'm really glad we got a chance to like circle back and and talk more about some of my work but i'm just as interested in your work honestly yeah yeah that that's a great breakdown of, of how it went and that was your experience i mean that's pretty spot on to how how we came to meet and your experience was was I don't know what it looked like on your end, but <laughs> on my end, the thing that was so it, it was comical about booking this job, right? I, I do auditions even before COVID, but especially post COVID, most auditions are remote. So you know, we hop on a Zoom call or you record something at your home or wherever. And this was one of those things where I had a I, I did the audition. And it worked out. I could fit it into my schedule for when I would record. But the callback, it actually fell on. <laughs> it fell on a day. I, I was I was I, I was playing in a golf tournament out in Idaho with. Uh, it was the True Links. True Links wear they like golf shoes out of Tacoma, Washington. Killer shoes. Love that. Love love the brand. Love the people. Love the shoes. They hosted their very first tournament, so I'm out there playing, and it was absolutely dumping rain. So I'm already scrambling. I'm like the, my callback when I'm supposed to be on zoom is in the middle of my round of golf. It's dumping rain. So I'm soaked. I mean, my partner and I, Taylor, we're, we're drenched and I have to run 
and run back in into the pro shop, try to get Wi-Fi, which I'm hoping there's Wi-Fi. And so the, all of this stuff's going on. And then I hop on the Zoom call with, you know, director and everybody else on production that was on there. And it was like, I'm scrambling. If there's any chance that I book this, it's going to be wild, right? <laughs> yeah. And just to give you some context, is we, for your character, we saw 50 other people. 50. Yeah. We saw, you know, we, we, those were our original cast. And then we winnowed it down to like, I think a half a dozen. Yeah. For callbacks. And so the, there was like stiff competition and, you know, um, <laughs> and you were under the, you seemed to be under the most like challenging circumstances. <laughs> so <laughs> you were, That's you, so know, I, you did. It, you, <laughs> so I was on the call and the director uh, you just jumped on, you had to switch times and, um, you were in a hallway, people were walking by, um, you were soaked and you, you know, you apologized for the, for the circumstances, no big deal. And you just, uh, you just, uh, hit a home run, you know, it was, it was like effortless. The director was like, Oh, can you do some things? Can you do some activities that we may eventually see in the, in the spot? And, and you did. And I was like, I said to my team, I was like, this guy's a pro. Like, he's just a pro, you know? <laughs> if he can do this, soaked in a busy hallway <laughs> while he's on a golf tournament, I mean, and, and you were you, you sh- on the shoot. Like, you're just a professional, you know? And uh, you, you even said at the end, I hope you guys have, have all the assets you need. And I said, damn, like, that is a pre- professional, you know? It's like... Yeah. And so, uh, that, that was immediately obvious and, um, sorry to interrupt your story, but you know, it was, um, it was a nice little performance in the middle of, uh, tough circumstances. <laughs> I, I appreciate it. That, yeah, that was, that's one of the most, I have a few of those stories and that that's, that's one of the top, I'd say top five of my experiences in this world that, it's like, man, how wild is this? That to actually book it just makes it even better. So I, I'm forever grateful that you guys, you know, that I that I landed the spot. You guys trusted me, and here we are. It's released as of what two days ago. Pre-order on Wednesday. Uh, they start yes. shipping on the 15th, and yeah, we're gonna kind of go head to head with Apple here. Uh, we yep. had events on the same day. Yeah. Apple and Bose. So there's there's a bit of a the press is creating a narrative around that. You know. Yeah old move from Bose. So yeah, you're associated with a very big time for Bose in terms of like changing the brand, like upgrading the brand and coming up with this new next generation product. So it's a cool time to be involved and, you know, yeah, we can talk about this experience for a long time. It's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Easily, easily. Okay. So we met serendipitously. We're on set. I get to talking to you. And, you know, we, we just kind of strike a simple conversation. At this point, we didn't know who was who. I mean, obviously, you know, yeah, mm-hmm. hey, he's the actor and everything. But we, we didn't know each other. We didn't. And there's for context for, for listeners, there's I would say probably 30 people on this production, something like that. There, there's a lot of moving parts, a lot of it, it's fast paced. There's people going here, going there and conversations get cut off real quick because they need you instantly. Right. So it is kind of an art in itself to maintain conversation through a shoot. Right. But we did it. And the the way we did it, I think, was because of genuine interest. It, it came up, you know, hey, what do you in, what do you do when you're not doing this? What's you, what do you do in your free time? And you, yeah, you know, I like I like to do some writing. And you were kind of humble about it. I'm like, oh, cool. Like, what sort of writing? And then comes out. You just published a book, just literally February, and 
the Empathy Academy. I ask you what it's about. You start to talk about it. And I'm sitting there like, there's no way that everything that I'm interested in is bundled up into this random guy I just randomly met who happens to be an author. I haven't met many authors serendipitously. So I'm like... I got to be honest, like, OK, he, he he wrote this book. It sounds awesome. But what are the odds that it's an actual enjoyable read? You know, those those odds aren't very high when you meet a random person. And, you know, it's not like I'm pursuing an author, you know, book talk or anything like that. So I'm like, cool. You know, you tell me a little bit about it. Tell me kind of what it's about. And I'm I'm hooked. So order the book. Fast forward. I read it. I couldn't put it down. It literally like three days. I have a, a baby at home, you know, family, work, all these things. And I could not put this book down. I was genuinely like, this is such a good read. It's such a good read right here. I still I still got it. I got a couple markings right here. Um, I'm curious, though, before we dive into this, because you published so far, you've published three books. Genius Dilemma was 2014. Without Limits, 2015. Empathy Academy, 2022. What happened between 2015 and 2022? (laughs) Oh, man. I mean, I did get an MFA uh, and went and studied, you know, fiction for two years. And during that period of time, I wrote this book, Empathy Academy. Um, I, uh, you know, I know I don't just write novels. I write uh, essays. And so I was working um, the past 10 years. I've been writing personal essays. and I've written about 23 or 24 of them. And most of those have been published. And so I've collected those up into an essay collection. So I was writing all that nonfiction. Um, and uh, I write journalism here and there. If I find a story that I'm interested in, I'll usually just pursue it. Um, I had a coworker once talk about something called the Mustang Makeover because she's a horse rider. Uh, she's a, uh, you know, uh, equestrian. Uh, she's interested in these things. And she said there's a competition where people get a, a horse and they get 100 days to, to break it, to go from a wild Mustang to a um, domesticated horse that can be ridden. Um, and so these are the types of things that writers uh, become interested in. Wow, that sounds really, really interesting. So I just I reached out to the, uh, the winner uh, of the previous year's Mustang makeover, and I just interviewed her and... Uh, I wrote a story and published it in Horse Illustrated of all places, you know. Um, and uh, <laughs> hold on, hold on. <laughs> that, yeah, that's right. I am a horse. I have a Horse Illustrated on my resume. <laughs> so, I didn't know this was a thing, but I'm so glad it is. Right, and horse, so Horse Illustrated, Horse Illustrated, and like um, I've done that. That's why seven years went by because I wasn't just working on that book, you know. Mm-hmm. I'm a really curious person. I I think I like should have been an anthropologist or something like that. I just like um, hear something that piques my interest and I just get into it. Um, yeah. And uh, so yeah, I I, I kind of bounce from project to project. And, right. Um, yeah. Need, needless, like there's no idle time. I'm always working on something every single morning, usually. Um, right the works yeah right so okay so seven seven year gap was it wasn't that you weren't writing it wasn't that it was just that you were fine-tuning a master in fine arts you were fine-tuning your skill set you were you were growing you were getting better and better and better and challenging yourself while you were also still writing for horse illustrated (laughs) (laughs) right what what is it it's mustang makeover 
Yeah, it's called. That's called. Okay, that yeah. that's that's fascinating to me. I genuinely think that's that's very very fascinating. You take a wild horse, you have a hundred days to break it. That's correct. Yeah, um, that's a piece I would love to read of, of yours. So I'm definitely yeah. definitely making note of this. So seven years go by. Empathy Academy, as I understand it, while you were in your master's program, this was kind of you were working on this. This, you know, you had some help, which we, we could dive into, and, and folks that were, you know, bouncing ideas and helping edit and, and so on. I'm very curious, what was the moment that this book was written? Like the moment you knew, I mean, it went from, oh man, kind of an idea to where you, it just, boom, you know. I don't have every detail. I just know that this is it. Like this, what was that moment? Do you recall? Uh, yeah, I think I, the premise came from the Bernie Madoff scandal. Honestly, I was darkly inspired by that, uh, his Ponzi scheme and the wreckage that he caused as a single individual, um, economically. Um, and I thought to myself, how why, why did that happen? Right. Um, how does someone go from this kind of quote unquote master of the universe to crossing all ethical and moral boundaries? You know, how do you go from one pole to the other? How, why do good people do bad things? Um, what is the origin of evil, so to speak? And so I, you know, launched into a, you know, kind of quest to figure these things out. Uh, and some of the work I read was like Philip Zambardo. He's a psychologist. He wrote a book called The Lucifer Effect. And he really looked at, you know, why good, well-intentioned people go wrong. Uh, he looked at circumstances where, um, where atrocities happened and um, scandals happened and uh, sort of decoded why these things happened. It, it, it very rarely was you know, a bad apple situation. It was more like a bad barrel or uh, a bad, uh, bad barrel makers as they call them. So I started to look at kind of what are some of these like organizational pressures that cause people to cross moral lines? What are the psychological pressures? What are the economic pressures? And, um, you know, it turns out why people do bad things is really, really complicated and really nuanced. And I thought to myself, uh, science fiction writers get to ask what if questions. So I thought, why couldn't we predict um, this type of unethical behavior? Why couldn't we? And if we could, why couldn't we get ahead? So I imagined a uh, tech entrepreneur who um, figured out a way to, to test for, you know, future for like a, a predisposition to unethical behavior. And uh, this test could be given to adolescents in order to like kind of, you know, get ahead of future future problems. And she created a school in the book. Um, the school is a way of exposing these uh, these vulnerable kids uh, to, you know, ethical teachings in order to kind of preempt their predisposition. Uh, and so that was the origin of the Empathy Academy. How could we spot a Bernie Madoff before he became a Bernie Madoff? <laughs> <laughs> they there's so there's so much gold packed into everything you just shared right now that I'm gonna try to I'm gonna try to <laughs> gently pull pull out a few pieces of yeah. it here. Yeah. So 
the moment the moment this book was written more or less was Bernie Madoff. And for listeners who who, who aren't familiar with Bernie Madoff, essentially he was a guy that managed people's money and he had a very successful business legitimately for years. And then kind of went dark and started cooking the books like Enron style. And he basically, the Ponzi scheme, this is where in our generation, I think is probably the most well-known person to introduce what a Ponzi scheme is to most people, which is basically if I take from Dustin a bunch of money and my next client is saying, hey, I need to withdraw money, well, I'll just be able to pass it over. But you know, it looks like their returns on their money is way higher than what it is. So he's moving money around illegally, horribly. And a lot of people lost their entire life savings. I mean, 60, 70 years of them saving up money and thinking that they have millions of dollars. And now all of a sudden they have literally zero dollars and, um, you know, goes to prison for it and everything like that. So he basically broke bad, right? The breaking bad. It's like, you're going, you're going well, everything like that. Philip Zimbardo, Stanford professor, uh, psychology. Yeah. And he's also the one, if you're familiar with the, the Stanford prison experiment, mm-hmm. which is a very popular psychology, um, experiment where you take a bunch of students and you just whimsically assign, Hey, you guys are going to be prison guards. You guys are actually going to be the inmates. And let's see, let's just see how this plays out. <laughs> right. Yeah. And you know, he, I think he stopped the experiment after six days because yes. the participants basically devolved into, you know, their most base, uh, behaviors. Um, and it became completely unethical and his wife, Philip's wife actually was the one who said, you need, you need to stop this. You need to put an end to what's happening here. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and yeah, that for that, for him was a very important, uh, you know, lesson that Mm -hmm. like just regular folks can, um, do some really bad things if given the right circumstances. Right. And yeah, that's and one of those circumstances is authority, right? When you're yes. given authority without guidance and without, you know, some sort of uh, parameters for which, hey, you know, you have authority. Yes. But also here's your parameters from which you can exercise that because they started doing I mean, the ones that were just very randomly assigned to be the prison guards started acting like aggressive prison guards. And they were doing a lot of t- t- like torturous things to the other students who were just randomly assigned to be the inmates or whatever. So right. uh, incredible work from that man in the world of psychology, for sure. <laughs> and, and so to bring us back, you, you see the, the Bernie Madoff scandal, see him in the news, everything that's uncovering about what he did to so many people in his pursuit of, his grandiose life and and who knows why because he was already pretty successful which is that's what's fascinating Mm -hmm. to me i think the yeah sorry the thing that i explored is like i think potentially there's also multifactorial why he did what he did but one of the maybe deep-seated psychic things was that he just couldn't fail Mm -hmm. he he had won at everything in his life yeah Um, and he could not admit failure he could not admit that his business was on the rocks right just accept that he may have failed at one thing in his entire life yeah 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 so enter empathy academy and (laughs) you explore a lot of these similar things where you know the 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 individual is you know hey I, i i just can't fail you know and and i think you dive into 
I think you dive into succinct moments um, without giving anything away from the book. I'm, I'm recalling the encounter in the driveway. Mm. And I think you, those little moments, it's like, man, this is so real. This is so accurate. And I studied psychology and sociology in, in college. And it's moments like that that I'm like, damn, this is this is the moment right. that 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 it's like, OK, somebody's doing like I'm, I'm doing something that's kind of bad and everything. But we do pretty well. I mean, humans by nature, we're pretty good at, at ignoring things or intentionally not you know, making eye contact with the problem. Mm-hmm. But the moment that it's made front and center and we have to face it. That's where the real challenge is. That's where it's like, man, it seems like that's where the good versus the bad, right? And I think that moment captures that so well where you go, okay, I either correct what I've been doing because I'm being made to face it or I double down. Right. Yeah. And I think it's um, that the scene you're talking about is crossing the line. You know, it's cooking the books. It's yes. either or not to cook, essentially. <laughs> that is the question. <laughs> and, and, you know, um, there's, a, there's a phrase called moral luck. Uh, it, and it's this idea that, like, a lot of us are lucky in the sense that we don't have to come face to face with a very morally complex issue. Yeah. Um, and, and kind of, you know, choose one evil over another or something. And so we get sort of lucky there. And, but I put this character, this is the father of the protagonist. He is what I thought of sort of the, the Bernie Madoff of medicine, if you will. He was some of his, some of his inspiration was based off of Andrew Lakefield, who, uh, is a scientist who, you know, uh, linked essentially in one paper autism to vaccines, which has now been, you know, widely discredited. And so I really, thought why not put a character uh sort of a fraudster if you will uh in the the world of science and medicine um and in that scene he essentially tells his toxicologist to omit data that would be um you know would make his future drug fail essentially you know it's mm-hmm. like uh it turns out that the the science showed in his biotech company that his his drug uh which has just come on the market um, it's a billion dollar drug and he's faced with data that essentially says it's not only, uh, you know, ineffective, it may be toxic. Um, mm-hmm. and so he makes the decision to give a directive to his toxicologist to kind of cook the books, to omit data. And that's called scientific fraud and, and it exists that it happens. Um, and it can set back uh, certain fields many years when it, when it happens in a big way. Uh, Andrew Wakefield's a perfect example of that. And, um, and yeah, and I really felt like uh, in the fiction, I needed to show a scene where someone made the choice uh, to do the wrong thing. Yeah, I think you did it fantastically. So this brings me to some questions about character building. Mm-hmm. You as a writer, this is fascinating to me. I'm I'm really curious how because I I I I feel like most people have experienced whether through television, film, or through books. Where I, I think we've m- almost everybody's experienced that moment where you're like, "This sucks." Like, what happened to my guy? Or what happened to my lady in this book that was you know she she was so like, what is even happening here? Right, where the development of the character seemingly falls apart, or you know, it's it just some wild thing that doesn't actually make sense in, in any sense, you know, 
I feel like every character you built into the Empathy Academy was so well done. I'm super curious how you even go about, how do you develop a character? Yeah, so um, that, thanks for saying that, um, because that's been a problem in my writing fiction for a long time. So um, I, in fact, like went and get an MFA because I felt like my earlier books, my first two books were just too... Um, too commercial, and I didn't have a good handle on the literary devices that I needed to have a handle on in, in order to take the next step. And one of those is, is character development. Um, on those first two books, I hired an editor to, um, he used to work at a big publishing house, and he, he pay him a certain amount of money, and he reads the manuscript, and then he gives you this three-page analysis. And the thing that kept coming back was the characters were not complex enough they were either too good or too bad, right? Part of this is, you know, the genre that I write in, which is science fiction. Um, it's kind of like, you know, um, you've got, you know, an antagonist and a protagonist and one is fighting for evil and one is the force that pushes against them. And like, but also you, you don't want to go too far. And I felt like my bad guys were too bad and my good guys were too bad. He, the editor said that my protagonist in my second book without limits was almost Christ-like. And that just means he was always like the good guy. And so yeah. as a reader, you kind of, you don't, uh, you get kind of bored, right? You kind of can predict what they're going to do and you, you and, and they don't, they don't change in any story. Uh, a character must change. Um, mm-hmm. And they become good to bad or from bad to good. Um, good to bad would be like, you know, breaking bad. Um, and Walter. The, yeah. Just the, the classic degeneration plot, you know, yes. a science teacher who becomes like a, you know, drug Lord, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and he, he's the, he's the best anti-hero that you could really imagine. And, and that's a good example, right? Complexity, right? Yeah. He's a family man, but also, drug lord he's like um he's like science teacher but he's also like an entrepreneur um but he's he's not pure evil right yeah and so one thing i really tried to do in grad school was study books with a really good antagonist and then you know figure out how to make bad guys a little bit good and good guys a little bit bad yeah (laughs) so the the real key is to kind of give give the reader a reason to say, oh, you know, when they're reading the bad guy's behavior to say, oh, I kind of understand why they're acting that way. Maybe, you know, maybe I see that someone hurt them in the past, or I see these certain circumstances have made them the way they are. And as you're reading, because it's fiction, it's made up, essentially, you you get to have this, this judgment. You get to say, oh, wow, you know, I... I wonder how I would, you know, react in that situation. And, um, and sometimes you identify with the bad guy You say, I've actually been there before and they're worse than I am. So I get to kind of compare myself there. And so, yeah, I tried to make, I tried to add as much complexity as possible, but just to give a motivation, not just mm-hmm. the bad guy being the bad guy, because that's sort of like the, the classic hero films, the, the superheroes, and they have their, 
they ha- they're very entertaining, but yeah, they um, they lack the kind of reflection of the human condition that I think makes literature like so rich and worth reading. Wow. <laughs> that, thank you for coming to my TED talk. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, 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 no. That that that, yeah, that, no. that was that wasn't an exasperated like man. This guy is talking his ass off. No. That that, that was a wow of like. There's so many things that are that are overlapping with uh, with acting with you know character yeah. development. There, there's mm-hmm. also there's also a fascination for me in trying to see how much of you, Dustin, the author's life is exposed in the Empathy Academy or, or your other writings, mm-hmm. right? How, how much of this is, you know, let's say the ability to write and put yourself in others' perspectives versus the ability to connect from your own perspective. And, you know, it makes me think, like you said earlier, your Bernie Madoff, like, dark fascination is what led to the Empathy Academy, you know, and I recall I even I had it I had it earmarked in here. This is this is a I'm gonna read. The, can I read this a little bit? Yeah, of course. yeah. So the the key point I want to get to here is this this one line, which is, "Let your curiosity be stronger than your fear." And yeah, so this little quick paragraph: start to think in these terms, not what you want for life or what you want from life, but rather what life wants from you. As you read and think, write down your thoughts in this notebook, write freely, don't self-edit, write about your family, write about your father, write about memories that seem difficult to bear. Let your curiosity be stronger than your fear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that there's a piece in there actually from Viktor Frankl, um, the Man's Search for psychiatrist who wrote Man's Search for Meaning. And his field that he invented was called logotherapy. And it's this idea that like man cannot live without meaning in their life. They need a reason to live, mm-hmm. they need purpose. And he does say that like, it, it was, it, I learned about this a few years ago when I, you know, when you're in your twenties and you're kind of like, like you're very willful in terms of finding what you want to do. Um, and you make a lot of choices to get where you want to go. But in Frankel's point of view, he says, you know, what is the world actually asking of you, you know? you're asking things and you're putting your desires out there, but is there a place where it seems like your interests and temperament fits with the needs of the world? And so that, you know, passage is really directly geared to the protagonist. The protagonist is 18 years old. So he's finding his way uh, before he goes to college. And so those are types of words that, you know, a young mind would really be needing to hear, which is that, you know, sometimes, I think life is a bit of like you choosing where you want to go and life sort of choosing where it wants you to go and sort of going that kind of push and pull. Um, yeah. And so that, that was the origin of that passage. Yeah. Okay. And, and how much of this, I mean, it sounds like you, you resonate with this, like from your twenties, you know, mm-hmm. that, that kind of experience. So how much would you say of your writing is, is really, let me dive deep into myself or like explore the dark side of me to find the antagonist or, you know, how, how much of this character creation for you is actually 
just you looking internally, you going, man, what about myself? Cause we are so multifaceted, mm-hmm. right? We, we are able to feel intense rage. We are able to have the thoughts of like, man, I would murder that person with the edge of a coin very slowly, you know, or death by a thousand lashes, you know, that we are able to, to explore and go into dark areas of ourselves. And, you know, like the story, the, the native American story of which wolf do you feed? Right. Yeah, and, right. It, and so we are, able to dive into all these different areas how much of your character building is you observing other people observing the world around you versus you looking internally and sitting at home in a room by yourself and going okay i gotta make this guy this antagonist is gonna be a bad guy but there's gotta be some good in there and how you know i'm looking inside myself how much of this is is exploring internally versus externally yeah so every character is a composite of a bunch of you and a bunch of other people and even a bunch of fictional characters that you've seen in movies and books, it's really, you're drawing from everywhere. I would say that a lot of the characters do come from myself um, in my own, like the, own, the, own, the insights I found, particularly during therapy. Um, throughout my 30s, I did psychoanalysis. And a lot of that is just insight finding. It's kind of going in the past and seeing, making links between I am potentially doing what I'm doing today because of something that happened at this time in my history and making those threads. Um, and then you know yourself better. And I think by virtue of knowing yourself better, having like a good storehouse of self-knowledge, you're better able to understand others because we're a lot more alike than we give ourselves credit for. Uh, We're all human beings and we all have these complex emotions and psyches. And so, yeah, I basically, sometimes fiction writers are kind of thinly disguised and others aren't so much. Mm -hmm. And so for me, there's, there's, uh, there's a lot of myself in all of these characters of course, the the villains are sort of exaggerated, right? Yeah. Um, I don't have a lot of personal experience with like multi-million dollar scandals and, <laughs> and interactions with the FBI and things. So that's all made up. That's, you know, but, you know, when I was a kid, I did a lot of stupid stuff, you know, yeah. uh, driving fast on country roads and, you know, like just throwing rocks at things I probably shouldn't have thrown rocks at. And, you know, Relate- I, relatable. But, <laughs> right. And it's, you know, it's teenage boys in, you know, Northern New Hampshire for me and yeah. get into stuff. And, um, you know, those kind of experiences where you just shake your head as like a 39 year old man, you know, it, it allows you to kind of say, well, you know, um, I wasn't some perfect kid, you know, mm-hmm. I was actually a boy scout, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> not, not all the time. You know? Oh, Dustin, you're forgiven for all the rock throwing and speeding. Then he's a boy. <laughs> he's a boy. <laughs> what I was doing when I wasn't, you know, at the Boy Scout troop or whatever. Yeah, kicked out. But yeah. no, it wasn't. It wasn't, you know, that bad. But it was enough where you know it allowed me to kind of draw on the fact that there is a shadow self to all of us. Yes. Um, and part of, I know you're one of your guys is Jordan Peterson and I follow him as well. And he's, he's big on this, right? It's the integration of the shadow. Um, mm-hmm. We don't often like to look at our negative or dark, dark qualities. We don't like to look at uh, atrocities in the past and say like, 
oh, I could have been a part of that given the right economic and sociological conditions. You know, we don't like to implicate ourselves. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I think part of the writer is being a little bit like a psychonaut, you know, you kind of go into your own soul and psyche and try to figure out, well, you know, I'm not all good and I'm not all bad. And it's it's exploring that tension between lightness and darkness. Mm -hmm. I, I happen to think these types of people who are willing to go and explore their shadow side and understand who they are, all facets tend to be some of the most psych- psychologically healthy folks out there. You know, they're not denying a certain strong feelings and there's, there's a health that can come from actually exploring the darkness. And that's really why I like writing villains is because villains are villains aren't villains in their head. Uh, they, they are on a righteous path. They, they actually believe they're doing good and moral. Yeah. So yeah, that, that's what I would say. Yes, I think you nailed it. Villains aren't villains in their head. They think they're doing good. This is, it's visible throughout history. And if you just take a snapshot of where we are right now in history, mm-hmm. I would say, look to any mass murderer who has a manifesto. They they all think that they're doing, you know, whatever your, your creator that you believe in, they think they're doing God's work. You know, there's, right. there's, there's actions that are atrocious, in society and they are genuinely being driven by what they feel is the right thing. You know, they feel I'm doing good. And it's also historically East and West. Like you look at Eastern philosophy and the the yin yang symbol, right? That's half of it is, is dark, but there's a little bit of light in there. Half of it is light and there's a little bit of dark in there. And that's representative throughout I mean, how many different dynasties, how many ages upon ages that this has been known that we all have that inside us. We all have a bit of this and a bit of that. And this is one of the things I think I, I agree with you, by the way, when um, you were saying, yeah, Dr. Jordan Peterson, who it's so funny, he's receiving so much, so much flack and so much hatred in so many ways present day. And it's fascinating to me because it's it's pretty representative of just socially where we are that I think is is unhealthy, which is to latch on to, first of all, latching on to all the negative and projecting that across the entirety of, of a being, right? I don't think that's that's good right. at all. And that's what's that's what's usually happening. There are things with Jordan that I strongly disagree with with that Jordan Peterson speaks about or talks about or he, he positions he holds. And to me, you know, like when I'm coaching people one on one, we we go into an exploration where it's like, what do you believe? Why do you believe it? Where did those beliefs come from? Where did they originate? And it's, uh, you actually talked about it earlier, exploring good and bad. There's uh, mm-hmm. Fred, Frederick Nietzsche has a book called The Genealogy of Morals, where just literally diving into where does good and bad originate? Where If we trace the family tree, you know, like I'm drinking tea and it tastes good. Well, how do I know what good is? And, and exploring all the way in the, in the depths of this, right? Like, would you call it an a, a psychonaut? Oh, yeah. So, astronaut. Explore space. The psychonaut explores the, the interior world. Yes. Yeah. yeah, and I love that. I've, I'd never even heard that before, but I'm like, yeah, a lot. Lock, of people, like the groups that are experimenting with psychedelics, they refer to themselves as psychonauts because they're going inward and yeah, trying to explore themselves. Right, which is fascinating, and that's something that I think mm-hmm. is. It's like, man, how how you know? I know I I know 
folks that have done, you know, ayahuasca on the journey where they're like, I have no, I have no idea what it's going to be like. And and I'm like, how, how bold, how brave of you to go and, and face yourself, mm-hmm. you know, it's that shadow self that, that mm-hmm. Jordan Peterson talks about Carl Jung, like that shadow self or shadow portion of ourself holds so much information mm-hmm. and so much wisdom. And I happen to think this is this is one of those things where it's like, oh, they're going to take an audio snippet and it's going to be used <laughs> against me. You know, this is one of those moments. But I happen to think that even 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 people that are committing c- completely atrocious, like heinous crimes, like you said, they, they do think oftentimes they think that they're doing good. I think that if they just sat with or maybe dove in a little bit more, right? You were talking about therapy. If they dove in a little bit more and, and asked deeper questions to pursue it further that they would absolutely be so far from committing anything like that. And they would actually probably end up going the complete opposite way and finding the most helpful thing to society, the most loving thing that they could find. Because I, that's my experience anyway. The, the further I explore the darknesses of me, the, the further that I explore, like, man, I have this hatred for this individual. And it's like, okay, cool. Why do you hate him? I just, oh, I just fucking hate him. You know, like that, that just, yeah. whatever it is. Sort of unconscious. Yeah. And, and the more that I ask questions about that and dig deeper, like, well, what is it is, what is it specifically that you hate about them? And then it's like, oh, you know, I just, it's their voice. Like, well, okay, well, why do you hate their voice? Like, what is it about the voice? Because it, it sounds like, it sounds like, and then you'll, you'll have, you might have a moment where you're like, oh man, it sounds like, you know, like my ex-girlfriend that broke my heart. That's why I hate it. And that's the attachment. It has nothing to do with that person. And it's interesting because you're, you're doing the work of self therapy there. Mm -hmm. Um, That's actually really important, but I find the role of a therapist, um, what they can do is see the things that you're not seeing because we are remarkably capable of seeing the things we don't want to see. So yeah, you might be able to make those threads in your own, you know, mind or while through journaling or talking with friends and things but a lot of times you're going to need some help. You're going to need a guide mm-hmm. and look at it a different way. Um, and that's where you, you know, you can be helped. Yeah. Cause uh, there seems to be a limit to self analysis. Completely, completely yeah. agree with you. And this is exactly why. So this is, this is largely why I, I just recently co- kind of opened up coaching, um, yeah. coaching people like coach one on one. I chat with you a little bit about it when we were on set, but I coach people one-on-one and this, I only recently opened it up to like kind of the public, right. As opposed to only word of mouth. I'm only dealing with people that I specifically, you know, that I know or know somebody who knows them, whatever. I, I kind of open it up to where people can interact, find me and show interest. And then maybe we can explore if I'd be able to be helpful or not. Right. Sure. And this is the exact reason why I have, I still have a coach and I plan to have a coach for the rest of my life. I don't have, I haven't, I actually, I did go to therapy in middle school. I, I, I went to therapy. It just clicked for me. <laughs> That's so funny because I, I had to go. I did anger management in middle school. And yeah. then and then with that, I had to go see a therapist. That was that was part of the, the whole process yeah. aside by the school and everything. So it just clicked for me. So I have gone to therapy as well. But I absolutely will have a coach for the rest of my life because of exactly what you're talking about. We all have blind spots and it doesn't matter how good you think you're sharpening your your vision doesn't matter what it is. We all have blind spots. And I can't tell you how many times, even though I coach people and I can coach myself as best as I possibly can with the same tools and the same skill set, the same everything that I use to help other people, 
I will always still have a blind spot. This is why the top performers in anything, I always cite Tiger Woods, one of the best athletes of all time, best golfer in all of history by far. His reign that he carried is so far from being touched, and he still to this day has a coach. He still has a swing coach. He still, you know, it's, it's not about the ego that I, I used to think this too. I used to, I used to think like, oh man, like I spend so much time, all the books on my shelf, I, everything studying psychology, all these things. I, I feel pretty good about this. And I'm just like, how stupid was I? You know, like how, how blind that was a blind spot of mine is to realize how many times have you had a conversation with somebody where there's an epiphany that comes out of it? Coaching is literally specifically targeting those repeatedly. Like what, what, what can we uncover here? It's not like, yeah, maybe this conversation we talk about our friends, family, or where we did last week for a trip. It's like, no, specifically let's work. Every conversation we're trying to expose the blind spots and see how we can become better and how we can stop holding ourselves back and, and really, really thrive. And a lot of, you know, I used to be in my 20s, like almost kind of like Pollyanna, like uh, very optimistic to the point of being Pollyanna. Like, oh, don't worry about that. We'll we'll figure that out or, yep. you know, stop, stop being so negative. Like just focus on the positives. Right. And I don't know. I just like through therapy, through writing, um, through maturity, I just became more actually interested in the negative in one in the ability to improve. Like <laughs> think about that for a second. Like. Focusing on the negative, I found allowed you to kind of level up more effectively. Mm -hmm. So it's less kind of always reading the books that make you feel good. And instead, like having the tough conversations that don't make you feel so good, that kind of expose weaknesses and vulnerabilities, and just kind of trying to get acquainted with those and doing the best you can to like maybe shore them up or just completely accept that you kind of suck in that category. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that makes you think that is like humility, right? You know, yes. Yes. And because you talk about things where you see, when you see in other people that you don't, you you just say, Oh man, I don't know. I don't like that person for some reason. We all have that. Uh, And sometimes I think for me, it's inauthenticity. If I detect inauthenticity or hypocrisy, same. I generally am going to have a negative reaction to that. Same. All sort of bound up in delusions. I don't necessarily like judge it. I'm not like, oh man, you got to like wake up or something. It's more just like, there's, that's not, the, yeah, I'm, I'd, I'd rather we kind of got more real about this, the situation right now. Yeah. And so kind of BS is not something that I react to very well. Right. <laughs> so, hard for me to like turn the TV on and like watch mainstream media or Mm -hmm. listen to politicians, um, sometimes interacting in corporate America. These are triggering, triggering experiences. (laughs) Someone who's like looking for authenticity. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) The mask is always on and Mm -hmm. somewhere along the line. And I'm probably hated for this. I just decided to take the masks off. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Kind of be, naked if you will and just yeah. say i'm just gonna like i i'm just gonna not bs at all like that's it <laughs> yeah so but so yeah. you're you are hated and and tell me <laughs> if this is the same experience that you have because i'm this is something i still pre- present day i'm still working on i'm still practicing is like removing more of the mask and revealing more of me and mm-hmm. obviously like we we get to curate what we put out into the world and 
one of one of the best compliments that I've received when I meet people that I'd never met before, but they may come came across my you know social media or whatever. One of the best compliments is they're like, dude, you're so you're authentic. You know, like this is you. This really, you know, that's one of the best compliments to me in a world where people are are so extremely falsifying their you know representation of self and things like this. Is this the case for you? Because this is how what I found. The more that I become authentic, the greater the bonds that I have. The 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 more hatred I do feel, and the more people that are just like, eh, you know, not really my cup of tea, sort of thing. And also, the other side of that is the people that do connect. The connection is stronger. It's more instant. There's because I I, I vibe with you on that. I don't like small talk. I don't like the, Hey, how's the weather today? How's your day going? You know, like ask me something unique, you know, you know, when's the, when's the last time you, you, have you seen an alligator in person? You know, like that's the intro. That's the opening line for yeah, you saying you, hello to you me. You did that on set too. When we met, you, you asked like a, like, I think we, we said hello. And then you followed up with like a penetrating question about like, <laughs> I write. And I was like, Oh wow. This guy, <laughs> but that, that was my cup of tea. I was like, this guy, kind of cares you know he's kind of not full of crap you know and and i think we both recognize that in each other (laughs) yeah for sure and that's that's it right like i I try to i it takes exercise it takes practice i was chatting with my nephew about this too because he's like how do you just talk to everybody how do you do it? You just, you could just talk to anybody and then you can create bonds. And, and I'm like, you know, he's just, he just started college and I'm telling him it takes practice. It's something that I, it's, you're not, I wasn't born with this, right? Like for you writing, you, you went back, you wrote two books and then you went and got your master's in writing. Like it's, it takes practice. It takes skill. It takes time to learn and, and develop these skills. It's, it's the same thing with talking to people. It's the same thing with, developing good questions. So I, I told him like, Hey, figure out Google random, interesting questions to ask people and just memorize like six of them. So you always have something to fall back on that you can throw out there. And then eventually, if you keep practicing that you're going to get better and you're going to find more unique questions, you know? (laughs) And so, yeah. Yeah. And have some patience with yourself and your own development, you know, like you're, talking to a guy who yeah has written three books but like i don't have an agent and that atmosphere press is not a major publisher they are press like but i've got 20 more books in me mostly yeah Yeah. and so you know it didn't happen it's not happening as fast as i wanted to right i think you just have to all the good things take time Mm -hmm. and uh how you develop does as well, whether it's, you know, your own personality or, you know, your work. Yes. Yes. Um, It's hard to be patient. Everybody wants to be CEO and wants to be an (laughs) entrepreneur like overnight, you know, and like a published author overnight, but we forget that there was like 10 years of darkness uh, of really figuring (laughs) out depths of despair. (laughs) (laughs) Comes in close to (laughs) Um, No, a hundred percent. Like, it's not, uh, you know, I'm here to like say that I wish people were more forthcoming about how hard it is to do what you really want to do. Yes. Um, you know, it just, it takes a long time and it takes a lot of like uh, course correction, mm-hmm. and a lot of experiments and a lot of failures and, yep. and a lot of like just thinking, I don't know. I don't know if I'm cut out for this. Right. 
mm-hmm. and the world just kind of constantly rejecting you. And <laughs> as like, I get a rejection for submissions that I send like every day. Oh, I'm yeah. getting rejections. All, I probably just got through during this. Episode. <laughs> 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 and like, um, I'm not going to sit here and say like, yeah, like, use those as fuel and stuff. Stephen King said he did print all out his, his, all his rejections and paste them on the wall. He put them on like a nail. Um, He wrote about that in his memoir and like, uh, do whatever you want to do. Right. But like, I'm just here to say, like, if you're really going for something, just buckle up, you know, because it's not going to be easy. You know, it's probably going to like cost you a lot. <laughs> not just financially a lot of a lot of stress a lot of time a lot of uh, yeah there's a yeah. lot there's a lot that goes into pursuing your dream especially in the creative world there's a, a in whole the creative lot. world yeah for sure and it t- and at the end of the day too it just takes some luck uh yep and uh that that certainly helps but hey, what's the what's the quote you know the harder i work the luckier i get i think I yes once. yeah yes yes so this actually brings us to a good point here. I know you were, you wanted to kind of explore a little bit on um, yeah the creative path. You had some questions. This is a first as well for for podcast guests that had questions for me, which was right. w- which was interesting. So you wanted to talk <laughs> kind of kind of about the creative path and the myth of talent, right? As well as um, maintaining a day job. Yeah, I mean, so the question I had was the myth of talent. You know, everybody talks about talent with a capital T. You got it, you're dumb, right? And yeah. that can like, I can like predetermine people uh, a lot. And from my perspective, writing is a skill. It's a learnable skill. We yeah. have certain temperaments and sensibilities that maybe predispose us to making better sentences than others, but it's a learnable skill and storytelling is a learnable skill and you can get better. I have gotten better and we'll get better. And so I am curious about acting. I'm curious about, you know, what I'm sure you hear that all the time, talent thing, right? Because I know when I saw you audition, I said, that guy is talent. I said, I just, I don't know what that is. I don't know what to call that, but you've got it. It's some sort of it factor. I'm not sure. If you, if you learned it, I'm sure you've practiced very hard, but like, so how do you feel about talent and how do you talk to people about it? Yeah. Uh, first of all, thank you sincerely. <laughs> uh, it's something that when you, when you receive a compliment like that, it's it, I still have a, a time receiving that and harnessing that and everything, because it is, <laughs> it's, it's the craft. It's your, your creative work. You don't know how things are received, you know, on the other end, you know how they feel for yourself. And a lot mm-hmm. of times, a lot of times I'll, I'll, I'll do something, I'll perform and I will feel like, dude, I killed it. And then yeah. it's like, yeah, you don't hear phones dead. You don't hear callback. Mm-hmm. You, you know, that's, and a lot of times I'm like, you know, I'll, I'll tell my lady after I, I did the audition, got the callback and then I do the callback and I, I go and I tell her like, oh man, that was trash. Like, honestly, it didn't go well. And they're like, Hey, we want to book you. And I'm like, oh man, you know, so hearing feedback like that that's something that i genuinely appreciate because it is it is something to be worked on always as for talent do i believe in talent what's my stance on talent i wholeheartedly believe that people are born with talent what i absolutely do not believe is that that's enough for them to be successful i think that talent is the same as as financial resources some people are born with a lot more 
and others are born with a lot less. Some people are born with the knowledge of how to use it. Some are born without the knowledge of how to use it. I think that what what's what should be focused on in the world of talent is development. I think there's going to be people who naturally have this gift or something. And I, and I could point to this for me specifically in, in modeling and even in acting as well, because you think of like, you think of old school pre audio actors where they literally didn't use words. They only just kind of mimed their actions and things like that. They're very good at communicating with just body language. Right. And there's subtleties to things. If you, if you watch a, an a incredible actor, on, on the shots where they, it's literally just here, they they emote so much and they capture so much emotion accurately. That's the key thing is, is accurately capturing it just from here, right? Mm-hmm. So you have, back in the day, just really physical actors and then you have really fine-tuned actors. And what I feel is key is developing your skill set in whatever level that is, but where there is a differentiation and where I feel like this kind of served me and having talent is I come from a sports background and I played a bunch of different sports. I, I played baseball, basketball, football, track, a bunch of different events in track and field, uh, you know, Muay Thai, kickboxing, the, the golf. There's all these different things that I've done physically. And a lot of them require very fine movements of certain parts of the body. I did this literally from three years old until present day. I'm still competing. Right. So for me, when it comes to modeling and they, the photographer and the art director know they need just the slightest movement. But if I move too much, it's going to screw the whole thing up. Right. I watched for, for so many years, I watched models where it's like, okay, you know, they'd say, okay, now, now turn your head just an inch to go uh, an inch clockwise. And they would literally shift their entire body they would move, you know, five inches rotating. And it's like, that just killed everything, right? Like we're worse off now than before we were trying to make the adjustment. What I'm getting at here is I had these things from my history that actually work in favor of me modeling or acting where I can, I can literally like, I can just move just muscle by muscle that a lot of people can't do. They just physically haven't trained that over the years. They don't know how to just literally flex one bicep, but not the tricep or, you know, whatever it may be to make the, the product look better or to, to communicate and and get the message, the brand message across more accurately, what the directors and art directors want. That to me, it lives in so many different spaces. The same thing with writing, I'm willing to bet. And I think Malcolm Gladwell does an incredible job in outliers in exposing exactly this. It's not, it's not a talent that does it. There is talent and there is a differential, a differential of talent that we're born with, but it's literally everything that you do with it. And sometimes it's just, it's just like accidentally in the right place at the right time. And that, and then boom, you got Bill Gates, you know, it's, it's stuff like this. So I do believe there is inherent talent, but I don't think that that's any part of the story that's worth writing about at all. I think we can connect the dots looking back. I'm willing to bet if I sat here and asked you questions about writing before you actually decided I'm going to be a writer, I'm willing to bet that you were, you were doing something, you were consuming something, you were interacting somehow with things that made you become a better writer. Maybe you're a person as a reader who actually, you focus less on what's the story of this book? And you focus more on like, what's the story of this individual? 
And you just having that mindset, you might be, you might be paying more attention to character development than I would. Whereas I might be reading and, and looking more at story development, you know, as opposed to individual characters. So you might be really, really talented in this thing just because of what your interest was. My interest was sports and moving my body. And therefore, I'm able to move my body in ways that other models that are competing for the same job or other actors that are competing for the same job, they're not familiar with. They're not as acquainted with and able to actually execute it when, you know, they say action. I think, I think that lives in, in everything. It doesn't matter what it is. There's, there's talent, but it's really about how did you develop it and how are you applying it? You know, that's, that's the key. in in my opinion, there's definitely going to be, you know, discrepancies. There's definitely people who have a head start for sure. But what are you, what are you going to do with that? You're just going to make an excuse or you're going to figure out how to be more efficient, more effective and learn how to develop better. Right. Use what you have, you know, full on strengths, you know, as well. Exactly. Now it's it's funny you you talked about you know uh, uh, actors' ability to to just communicate something uh, on their face. This is some of my favorite parts in film, like um, the end of Zero Dark Thirty. You have you know a woman who spent the better part of a decade on one mission, and she got exactly what she wanted, mm-hmm. and then at what she had nothing else. That was it. She didn't know who she was. She didn't know what to do next. Mm-hmm. And so when she got on the plane at the end of the movie, after her team had killed Osama bin Laden, she, the camera came up right on her face and it stayed there for, I don't know, 20 seconds or more. And someone asked her, where do you want to go? And she didn't, there's no dialogue. There doesn't need to be any dialogue. Mm-hmm. So she just stared, not down the barrel of the camera, but like she's, she communicated her sense of relief, her sense of like, who actually am I now? And what should I do next? And it's part, it's a, it's a triumphant moment um, because she got what she wanted, but it's also a moment of feeling very lost and and her eyes well up, you know, it's like, how do you, (laughs) to me as a non actor and probably like a horrific actor. If I, (laughs) 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 like, I just know how you get there. Mm -hmm. Now I know as a basic person is like method. uh, And I know that, you you know, is that what you're supposed to do? Like, I, I, you know, on sets, I've acted as a director in a way where I'm just like, okay, think, think this and whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, get yourself in that headspace, but to actually do it is another thing. Like, I don't know how you communicate a whole world of story through your face. Mm-hmm. That's a, <laughs> that's a good, that's, that's a good, that's a good inquiry, a good inquiry. So the, one of the best quotes that I've had that I've come across to describe acting is to live truthfully under imaginary circumstances. So, Basically, actors are really good liars, but to be a really incredible liar, you actually have to believe. And that belief, it, it shows up, right? If you when you when you see stuff and it's like, oh, they broke character, right? You see those moments where they're like, they broke character. That belief is gone in that moment, right? Whatever, whatever it may be, when you break character, that belief is gone. And that is something, this is actually one of my greatest fears when I, when I started kind of pursuing acting and it still lives in me, right? One of my bigger fears was and is 
what if I get a role that I become, and, and especially feeding mm-hmm. the dark, the dark side, what if I get a role that I become so enthralled with and I'm giving so much time and energy to that even when the director says cut, I can't, can't pull myself back. Yeah. I think that happened with like Jim Carrey and his portrayal of uh, Andy Kaufman. I think 100%. He never left. (laughs) He never broke character day Mm -hmm. in onset and offset. Yeah. And I think what happens is what's called identity diffusion. It's Mm. who you are sort of spreads out. And I think that is a real cost. It's a cost for writers too, journalists, especially, Mm -hmm. you know, constantly work with so many different subjects. Yep. And you, who you are sort of spreads out a little bit. Mm -hmm. I think what you're articulating is like a a sort of fear of like, man, I really get this action. I really get this so well that I can almost like slip. Like I could, um, they could stay attached to me a little bit. Yes. And I, and part of that is because I am, I am very cognizant of paying attention. Like you said yourself earlier, I don't, you don't watch mainstream media. You don't watch politicians because you know that falsification or non-genuine communication is a trigger for you. You know that about yourself, right? (laughs) I still watch it. And my girlfriend sometimes says like, why do you watch it? I'm mad. I watch the nightly news every night. And within two and a half minutes, I'm already, because it's so biased and just the correspondence and the way they talk it just gets to me every single time it's a it's a little bit of it's a little masochistic (laughs) it's like i like this pain it's it's kind of like hate scrolling yeah i'm hate sort of hate watching the nightly news i don't know (laughs) but um yeah it's you know that's true so (laughs) there's yeah you know that we do we do things like this right like anger feels it feels nice to express anger sometimes, right? Like when you get really, really angry and you can express it, it's actually quite relieving. So when you can yell at a television and you can get angry with your friends and all that stuff, and then like, uh, there's some relief there. And even what you were talking about earlier, and I know you have an an interest and study a lot of, a lot of biology and, and, like anatomy and things, the way, the way the human body is affected by things. And Dr. Gabor Mate is, I mean, he has loads of information on how, what's this book called? It's not his, but um, The Body Keeps Score, I think it is. Oh, yeah. Vessel Vanderkolk, I think. Yeah. It's it's, it's a book about trauma and PTSD and how traumatic experiences stay in the body. Right. Um, They stay in our nervous system and they can change, you know, hormonal systems and, um, yeah, I think it was like one of the, it's a major, major work on yeah. how traumatic experiences actually change our biology. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it made that connection between the head and the body, uh, very concrete for war veterans, but also people that had very traumatic experiences. Uh, right. Big book, really big book. Yeah. And I, I, it's, it's on my reading list. I haven't, I haven't read it yet, but that's exactly, that's, that's my understanding of it as well. I've heard plenty of people talk about it and things like it. So the, there's, there's some aspect where I'm like, I'm, I'm conscious of what I consume, right. Intellectually, as well as, you know, food wise, I try to, I try to eat well and all these things. So what am I exposing myself to? What do I choose to watch and things like this? But there's some times where you're just like, you know, it is, a, it is a little joyful to, to feel a little bit of rage at something, you know, it is like that. That's kind of the dark side where it's like, it does feel nice a little bit, but 
it's also, you know, I, I try to be conscious of this. So going into acting and playing a role and everything, I love, like I've had moments in acting class. I've had, I've had moments where I, I would end up, I would end up in tears full of rage, like rage filled tears during an acting exercise. It's all fun and games. And then it's like, all right, good job. You know, it's great. We're done with that, whatever. But that lives in you still. Like, I'm still, I'm, you know, we're, we're five, 10 minutes after that, that moment, after that scene, I'm not up, you know, there's other actors that are exercising. I'm sitting back and it's still like, it's still washing over me. Right. What did so, you act? Sorry. I was going to ask what you accessed. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> what's funny, what's, what's funny about that, that, that I loved these acting classes. This was with uh, acting, <laughs> acting coach, Janet Lee Hamblin. She's down in LA now, but she's in Portland. So, What's funny is it wasn't necessarily a lot of these things would come up without intending for them to come up. So she would organize an exercise that, you know, it's all about it's all about I'm acting based on I'm just reacting to you. That's it. I'm literally I'm trying to connect with Dustin right now so much that I'm reading and I'm like, oh, he's pensive right now. Oh, he's thinking, oh, he's kind of, you know, (laughs) (laughs) he's amused now. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Yeah. And it's moment, it's moment to moment. It's, it's the Meisner method of acting. So a lot of times it's, it's literally, I'm so engaged with you that, that it just pops up. It's not like, let me, let me try to access something. Right. So there'd be times where I'd be in there and do the exact same, the exact same, um, exercise, that I would do with you, I'm, I might end up in a, in a 60 second span. I might end up in tears of, of deep gratitude, or I might end up laughing. You and I would be laughing like hyenas, or I might just get so filled with rage that I want to break something, you know? And it's, it's literally without, without even doing anything, without queuing up anything, you, you explore the full range, the full spectrum of, of human emotion. Right? So that used to scare me because <laughs> it's funny too, because I talk about, yeah, I did anger management in middle school. So it, it used to scare me and it still does. There's still is fear there because I have a fear that I will seriously hurt somebody. You know what I mean? Like genuinely, I'm a larger dude. If, you know, if I get into a fit of rage, it's like how, who's going to stop me? You know what I mean? Right. I felt the same way and maybe during road rage or something. And right. I'm equally a large fella. Yeah. If someone wanted to go, I've never gotten in a fight, but if I got in a fight, it's yeah. What am I going to do? You know, it's not going to be. Yes. Statistically, I'm probably going to do some damage. And so, yeah, there's a little bit of a a fear of. Yeah. Unless, unless, (laughs) unless that person's trained, unless they train martial arts, it's like, uh, you know, so, so for me, kind of getting back to the original question and, and exploring the fear and, and how do you access that? And how do you, you know, how do you dive in for me? Part of it, I, I, I do have a fear of going there because you got to think when, when you're shooting a film, when you're shooting, you know, scenes for something, if it's not live acting, when you're shooting scenes, there are some times where you have to do the exact same scene 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 times, right? So let's say in the whole span of a movie, there's that one moment that's like the, mo- the darkest moment. You have to access that, that deep, sadistic, like think Joker, you know, Dark Knight. You know, it's like if it's the darkest scene that, that gets the deepest to the depths of your darkness and you have to replay it and you have to relive it and you have to do it over and over and over, That that's 
that wears on you. That's, you know, that's something that, that, that can really, it can really consume you in a way, right? If you, if you are really diving in, if you're not holding back and you're really letting these emotions come up, cause you should, as an actor, you should l- literally, you want to live truthfully. So in order to do that, you have to feel those things. You have to really genuinely feel it. That's why when you watch a good actor, when you watch the dark Knight and everybody was going crazy over Heath Ledger's performance, you're like, this is insane. You're not seeing Heath Ledger. You're seeing the Joker and you're seeing this like, he's so good. And he was, yeah. And I think, right. One could make the claim that he went too far. Did he not? Um, is people have said, I'm not sure if I believe this, but it's a cautionary tale of going too deep into one's Mm -hmm. character because he, um, he died not that long after, right? Did he, did he not, and and he gave a performance of insanity, of pure, like just <laughs> kind of like explosive uh, insanity, and right? And like, yes, you're right. He he as an identity disappeared, and mm-hmm. what came up in its place was someone who was insane. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a really interesting cautionary tale about kind of what you were talking about is you're afraid you could be afraid that you could go too far, that you mm-hmm. could lose yourself in the process of your art. Yes. Um, and I, I feel you there. I, I think that's a particular, uh, like a risk that I think is for, for actors more so than the writers, writers can kind of be heady about the whole thing mm-hmm. or kind of, you know, you're, you're in the body, you're in, you're giving everything a writer are just giving, I mean, you you should feel things, but I don't think you feel it as kind of like transformatively as, as you feel it. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a trip. That's why like when you there, I've shared, I've, I've shared screen time. I've shared set time with some actors that I look at and I'm like, man, I'm so, I'm so impressed. I'm fascinated by this individual because they they have zero they have zero limiter they're like i'm i will go all in on the insane i will go all in on the and and to me i'm like you know there's a fear of the dark side of myself you know there's a genuine fear of 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 feeding that of of letting that live more and more but then there's also like dr gabriel mate like i was addressing earlier where that's actually healthy to express it. If you can choose healthy ways to express the dark side of you, that's actually healthy because then your body isn't going to keep score as intensely. You're you're actually letting that out. You're not harvesting it and, and keeping it with you and taking it with you forever and ever. So, oh yeah, I'm all about kind of transforming pain into art. Yeah, this is very Frederick Nietzsche. You know, this is kind of uh, turn one suffering into something of value for others. Yes. Um, that's the pro-social, the positive way to deal with pain and, and traumatic experiences if you can. And that's, that is the role of artists in society, I think. Yeah, I completely agree. I completely agree. All right. (laughs) We're going to, we went, we went overboard here and I'm, I'm not mad about it one bit. (laughs) (laughs) No, man, it's fine. (laughs) Definitely. um, We just block out the whole afternoon. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. We just keep, yeah, we, we cut, we cut mics and then we just stay on for the next seven hours. Um, before, a good time. <laughs> <laughs> before we, before we go, 
I want to at least make space. We didn't even get to all the bullet points that I had, you know, to, to address and everything yeah. like that. But I definitely want to give space for, for you, anything that's been on your mind, anything that you are like, this is my message to the world that, that you haven't been able to share yet. Um, whatever it is that you feel you would like to put out into the ether and you haven't yet, um, or any questions or anything like that, this is the time let's, let's let loose as we, as we have a gentle wind down from a wonderful conversation. Yeah. I think at the end of, you know, discussions like these, uh, it's customary to kind of talk about like advice or lessons and things. And I think the one thing that I have learned over 10 years of, of writing and like not even being kind of very close to where I'd like to be, or where I think my potential is, is this idea of like dealing with uncertainty and dealing with like ambiguity. And I think that is something that you don't kind of learn in MFA programs or you learn from books necessarily, um, which is that, you know, a piece of work, whether it's a novel or a painting or whatever, is this kind of very amorphous, changeable thing that like you have an original idea and it, and it, it can, it can and will change quite a bit over time and sitting in that space of, I'm not sure what this is yet, or I'm not sure where this is going to go, or like, maybe I should cut this and add that, or maybe I should go left instead of right. Um, these are uncomfortable experiences, actually. Like I'm someone who, you know, like really likes an outline, used to use an outline and used to like know exactly what scene I was going to write when I sat down. But, um, you know, in my MFA program, I met a playwright actually who just, um, you know, writes by the seat of her pants. She doesn't outline. She just goes for it. She just jumps in page one and just <laughs> writes a play or she writes novels. And I used to think that was crazy, you know, like mm-hmm. how do you, how do you like engineer the story? Right. You need to know, like, uh, you need to like build in twists and you need to know what's going to happen at the end before you kind of get in the middle and all the rest. But then I started to do that too. I started to write short stories from the seat of my pants. I used to just launch into the story, not really knowing where it was going to go. And it did kind of reinvigorate my love for writing. I think there was something that was getting a little stale about the experience of writing my first two novels by outline at a 70 page outline, you know? And then um, uh, I started writing short stories where I just let it rip. And um, that it gave me a feeling of discovery, like mm-hmm. a feeling of like, Oh, you know, I just surprised myself there. And oh, that was kind of fun. And, you know, it kind of brought the fun back. And, and I think the whole key to it was like, I'm not sure what I'm doing here. And that's, <laughs> that creates this big tension. You know? <laughs> it's yeah. this tension of like, Oh, it's kind of fun, but it's also just like, no idea what to do next. Uh, Cause I haven't thought it up yet. So mm-hmm my thing that I want to talk about um, in response to your question is like dealing with uncertainty. You know, we, I've had this addiction to certainty my whole life, you know, mm-hmm. I know exactly what I'm going to do today and tomorrow and in five years. Right. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, Nope, that's not how life works. You know, like, you know, it's like, what's the Michael Mike Tyson quote. He's like, 
everybody has a plan to get punched in the face, right? Yes, yes. It's just, that's it, you know? And like trying to be uh, comfortable with the uncomfortable aspect of that and moving, rolling with the punches, so to speak. Mm -hmm. It's uh, what a poet called negative capability. This is called negative capability. Mm -hmm. Um, The ability to to work and grow a project over time while it, while accepting changes that happen while accepting that you as the author changes as well and just mm-hmm. kind of keep kind of correcting and um and rolling with the punches that that come so yeah, yeah that's, that's what i would say i love it i i think you <laughs> i think i think you just sparked some ideas internally for me one of those is we have this i I can recall literally middle school mrs wright she was my 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 english teacher and i still remember the the writing guideline to outline your writing you know and and like here's how here's how paragraph is formed you know you make your statement for example this shows that this is because as a result i still have that literally locked in and I'm thinking to myself as you're as you're saying this, I'm like, yeah, you know, I always if I'm going to write something, I outline first and all this, and then I think I'm big on challenging our our, our assumptions, challenging our beliefs and and everything because whatever is true, whatever is right, whatever is accurate will stand true at, after any scrutiny, right? And you make me think, what's wrong with writing half of a book and then doing an outline? when you're halfway through a book, like what's wrong? What if we just reordered things? What's wrong with that? Like what would be wrong in doing that? And the the reality is there's nothing wrong. The outline doesn't have to come first necessarily. Maybe you do just sit down, take action. And yeah, the whole point is to drop rigidity when any project, right? Cause like what the, the real, the real bitch of it is, is like every single project is a new problem. Mm -hmm. Some books uh, require an outline because m- maybe it's like a mystery. And so you mm-hmm. need to have all these little red herrings and stuff. Yep. And some books don't, some books you just let it rip. Um, and so not being rigid with your creative process is the part of developing as an artist mm-hmm. or to stay flexible with every project in order to bring a beginner's mind, so to speak, to every, yes. you know, to not have your cup be full when you start something, you know, mm-hmm. just say like, Ooh, what I know now does not, it's not going to work. Yeah. This project. Yep. And I'm going to have to kind of relearn how to do what I do. And mm-hmm. I think that's the thing that is, you can only learn by doing. You just yeah. have to make stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that. I love that. Just get out there. And, but it, it also points to an aspect because you didn't start just writing all willy nilly like this until after you had a sure. couple books written and after your master's program. Is that right? That's true. And so I may have internalized a lot of things like structure and yeah, totally right. So, well, this is, this is a key. This is one of the things that also in, like I bring this up in coaching as well. Uh, When I'm working with people that are trying to accomplish something new, whatever the goal is that they're working on, I try to encourage them to explore these. It's literally three steps. It's be able to identify a pattern. So we start out, who's somebody that has done the thing that you are trying to do? Who's someone that's successful in what you're trying to accomplish? Identify what patterns they've used, right? So you identify the pattern first, and then you repeat a pattern. So do what they're doing. 
right? Repeat the pattern, whatever it is. So if they're outlining first, start outlining. If they don't outline, don't outline. Just repeat the pattern, right? Identify the pattern, repeat the pattern. And then the last part of this, which is what you're doing, create your own pattern. Once you're able to identify patterns well, and once you're able to repeat patterns well, you were talking about this with your writing too. You were like, yeah, you know, there were authors that I wrote and I love them. And so I would just kind of try to recreate that stuff. That's, that's the flow. Identify a pattern, repeat a pattern, and then you create the pattern. You create your own pattern, whatever that may be. Totally. And yeah, I mean, I would also say there may be a step between like three and four of like having a mentor who uh, looks at your patterns and say like, these patterns are solid, but these patterns are not conforming to certain craft elements that, that should, that's the, uh, I think Tool Gawanda, a surgeon at Brigham Women's Hospital, he's a, he's a good like five minute TED talk. And it's about the role of a mentor. Yeah. Because what they do is they help you say, that's wrong. Do this. That's mm-hmm. wrong. Do this. That's okay. But go a little bit like this. Yeah. And they're slowly making all these micro adjustments. So you become an expert eventually. Yes. You don't want to just go it alone and sort of develop all these habits mm-hmm. that, you know, are going to lead to a poor outcome. Yep. So someone, you know, who is, you know, it's one thing to study things and take them apart and then try out, but it's also good to have someone look at that and say, here's what you're missing. Mm-hmm. Right. And to be like humble about that and be like, Oh yeah, you know, that's right. I really, I'm really blowing it there. Mm-hmm. And, and then, you know, kind of looking at the darkness, looking at the negative. Yep. Um, and that's how you level up, you know? Yes. That's it, man. That's, that's, that's why I, that's why I'm like, I'm going to, I'm going to have a coach for life. Like I, I yeah. don't ever, I don't ever want to stop growing. I need someone to point those things out. I need someone to show me my blind spots and the, and every, every time we level up, there's new problems we have to solve. And, and so mm-hmm. it's, you, you can't expect to just like, Oh, okay, I've made it. I don't need help anymore. I don't need, you know, assistance, guidance and oversight. I don't need any of that. No, you, you definitely do. If you want to keep growing, if you want to keep improving and, the reality is you need to do this for everyone else. Don't do it just for yourself. I mean, you serving your purpose in life to serve others, whatever that may look like, whether it's writing books that get people excited. Like I had a great three days reading the empathy Academy, <laughs> you know, and that wouldn't happen if you didn't do something to serve other people in a sense. Right. So yeah, I'm, I'm full, fully, fully in agreement with you on that. Absolutely. I think that is a good fourth step. Yeah. Yeah. And then again, just, patience right you know (laughs) yes just you know it doesn't happen overnight (laughs) and you know live your life and find joy in things other than your passion uh, Mm -hmm. in order to you know you don't get much time here right so you don't want to be um just kind of like mindlessly going after your goal at expense of everything right right enjoy the process figure out how can i how can i pursue the goal and enjoy the process of doing it that's a great question to to ask yeah for sure for sure beautiful all right author dustin grinnell i'm gonna give you a hype button oh let's go (laughs) well thanks buddy this is this is fun Uh, yeah um, I really appreciate, you know, you, uh, like my book and ask me to come on and have this conversation uh, Definitely. for hours. So appreciate it. Yeah. Big time. Yeah. I appreciate you. I, um, man, I'm, I'm excited for this. You, you're, you're inspiring me to start writing 
and not uh, not like oh let me write a book but just like just write just write some stuff yeah do uh do a you know one act play or something or yeah or write, just a little, a, poem. a little scene a poem something we'll see but i appreciate it and i hope uh, i hope anybody listening gets some some inspiration as well yeah and Man, I don't know. Maybe uh, maybe I'll have to dive into a couple other books here. We've got Genius Dilemma and Without Limits that I have not yet read. Yeah. Well, I've got some more coming for you. Uh, looking for a publisher for ne- for the next one. And and it's already done. And I, uh, you know, working on the, uh, I guess, the next one after that. It's I have a first draft. So, oh, I love this. Know, this is going to be a whole lifetime yeah. for you to dig into. Um, in, it, in it for the long haul. Dustin Grinnell, what a beautiful mind. Dustin, thank you so much for the time. That was, oh man, what a treat. I genuinely want to pick his brain some more. All right, a couple things here. Therapy. You heard Dustin talking about going to therapy. I cannot stress enough how valuable having somebody else in your life who is in your corner, who you know is rooting for you and they have the tools to help you along. I can't stress how valuable that is to have in your life. So if you've been thinking about therapy, if you've been considering reaching out or making contact or setting up an appointment with a therapist, I highly encourage you make today that day where you just make an appointment, make the phone call. Even if you don't want to make an appointment right now, just make the call today to find out more information about therapy from somebody. As you heard me talk about a little bit, coaching. I do coaching. I do one-on-one coaching. Occasionally, I'll do group coaching sessions as well. But coaching is another thing that I cannot stress enough, the value of this. It's beautiful. It's powerful. I love to see people succeed. I love when people overcome challenges in their life. I love to help people do that. And there's so many tools that I've been able to develop over the years that just help really, really get rid of a lot of the fat or a lot of the misdirection in growth. And we just get straight to it. If you've been thinking about coaching or therapy, the difference from these that I would say is therapy is is looking in the past and trying to heal and make connections in the past with things you've experienced, make sense of your past and, and come to grips with it. Coaching, on the other hand, is about the future. It's about what are you after? What do you want? What are the goals? What do you think you can achieve? What's holding you back from that? How can we get you there? That's what coaching is. That's what I do. I have one more spot as of right now, as of this recording, I have one more space available for one-on-one coaching. If that's something that might interest you, just follow up with me. We'll just set up a call. We'll talk about it. See if it's a good fit for you. If I might even be able to help you and what it is that you're after. And if so, then we can move from there. If not, I'll try to help point you in the right direction or at least give you some resources of maybe next steps for yourself. You can find me on Instagram at anthonythomas33 or just straight to my website. That's anthonyjthomas.com. There we have it. Thank you, Dustin, once again, for your wisdom, your insight, and just sharing a good time. Thank you to the listeners, big time. I've been so excited from donations that have come in for the podcast. It allows us to keep going. And if you want to support this podcast, there's many ways to do it. You can share the podcast. You can review the podcast. You can subscribe to it. You, Of course, you can donate to the coffee fund that helps keep our editor on board. Head over to anthonyjthomas.com slash podcast. Keep Phil on board to keep these edits going clean and smooth and hopefully you're not having wild different wildly different sounds uh, at the end of one episode and the start of another one so phil thank you for that much love to you all until next time peace